we'll get on to that. We'll do a lot of singing of hymns and have some nice food and enjoy lightness and levity and beauty and the blessing of God when the world is on its way out, headed for the darkness of Christmas, if you will. Now, last week I led up to through going through the book of first part of the book of John and some in first John and Colossians and so on, showing how Christ was the God of the Old Testament, that he is the one who created the worlds and created uh, Genesis one, and led up to the book of Hebrews about and the subject being partially Melchizedek and who is he because there are a lot of people who don't believe that was Christ, and some even in the church have not accepted that. So I want to us to understand for sure who the God of the Old Testament was, who the Melchizedek was, because he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews as our current high priest. And we need to know with certainty who is the instigator of the new covenant, Understand that the Old Covenant is still in effect. Paul mentions in the book of Hebrews, and we might see that one in particular, I don't know. But he says that it's waxing old and ready to pass away. He's introduced the New Covenant to a very, very few people whom he has called, or the Father has called. A very few. The rest are under the terms of the Old Covenant. Physical Israel, our nation, and those of Western Europe and Australia and some of South Africa and various places where there are Israelites are still under the Old Covenant, as is the world. The rest of the world, the Gentile lands, have not been offered the New Covenant. They've not been offered the true faith, the true doctrine, the Holy Spirit of God, even though they might think they have. Even though they might recognize there is a God, they don't know really who he is or what his will is or what his laws are and don't even try to keep them. They say they're done away. And that's most of the religious world of Israel. I mean, the twelve tribes of Israel, wherever they may be. So they have not been baptized properly into the truth and don't worship in the Spirit and in truth. So they are still under the terms of the Old Covenant. Well, what were the terms of the Old Covenant? Christ married ancient Israel, and the terms were, if you will obey the law in a physical way, I will give you physical blessings. Those were the terms of the Old Covenant. Israel... For most of its history and most of its people through the thousands of years did not obey God, did not follow the old covenant. Christ wound up divorcing them. It was a marriage covenant. He was looking forward to having a marriage with physical Israel. And he offered himself the perfect husband, the only one there's ever been so far. Sorry, guys. uh, just the way it is. The only one so far. But the wife was unfaithful and untrue 
and he wound up divorcing ancient Israel, and that covenant then was set aside. No longer would they be able to marry. But he did not do away with it entirely, as Paul says. It's waxing old as a garment. It's been worn a lot, and it's, it's very frayed and about to go away. So, any possibility of that marriage succeeding with ancient Israel is pretty well gone. I think he left the door open to some degree if they would ever obey. But that has never happened. So, it is going to be completely quashed. And Israel has not obeyed. This nation has not obeyed. We used to call ourselves Christian as a nation. We don't anymore, the majority of the people. But it was a false Christianity uh, without understanding the true God. So, we are now in the beginnings of the punishment and the wrath of Satan and the wrath of God against Israel and ultimately the Gentiles included through the tribulation and seven last plagues. We've entered that period of time now when God's beginning to cause his judgment to come down. And we're seeing it. We're living it. It's going to get a whole lot worse. So there are only a very few who have been given opportunity and have made a commitment to the new covenant. And we have started examining that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to understand fully and review, because we understand it, but we need to review and understand what it is that God truly expects of us under the terms of the new. But we better understand who the high priest is and understand who is the one who created this covenant. And in the book of Hebrews, Paul brings up the Melchizedek of the Old Testament. So, as an introduction, let's go back to the actual only two times that Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament. You might have thought there were more instances of it, but look it up. It's only twice. It starts in the first time in Genesis 14. Now, lay, lay the background here. Uh, there was a confederacy of kings who went up against Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot was, of course, at this time living in Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom, and he was taken captive by these kings. And Sodom and Gomorrah and all their goods and all their people, men, women, and children, were taken captive and being taken elsewhere. It says in, chap in chapter 14, verse 12 of Genesis, And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So they gathered every up everything, spoiled the cities, and took them with them. And there came one that had escaped, and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. These were the confederate with Abram. So he had some allies there with him. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, it was actually the son of his brother, but called her brother here, and in that sense, 
was a brother. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them to Dan. It wasn't Dan then. Uh, Dan hadn't been born yet. (laughs) But it was the area that became the tribe of Dan later on, after Dan was born and, and Jacob's sons. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night. So he divided his 318 men up into different groups or companies and smote them and pursued them. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So he brought back everybody that had been captured. Now the king of Sodom went out to to meet him after his return, and the kings were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. Now, introduced into this story, then, is another being. It's been talking about Abram and Lot, and these kings that had gotten together uh, both to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and also who had allied with Abram to go after them. He had 318 of his own, plus we'll see down here a little later, others who went with him, his allies. But here's another figure in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now let's see some clues here in this statement. Here's Melchizedek, who is king of Salem. Salem was an early name for Jerusalem before the Jeru was added to it. And we'll find in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, that not only was he king of Salem, but Paul equates that to the king of peace. He says, the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Salem means peace. But Paul made it very clear there that he was not only the king of this Salem, this city, but also the king of peace. Well, now, does that give you a clue? Who is the king of peace? Galatians 6 says that one of the fruits of the Spirit of God is peace. So, peace comes from God. It is a godly thing. Uh, We can have peace only through the Spirit of God, the right godly peace. So, here we're talking about the king of Salem and, by scriptural testimony in Hebrews 7, the king of peace. Who is going to rule the world in peace for a thousand years? Christ himself. So, Paul clearly says that back here, the king of Salem was the king of peace. That could only be Christ. Now, notice what the king of Salem brought forth. Did he bring beef and milk? No, he brought bread and wine. Interesting. Whose body and whose blood is symbolized by bread and wine. Christ himself, who came and said, Eat, this is my body, and drink, this is my blood. 
So this is before Passover. This is before Israel even was ever established. And yet here comes the king of peace, the king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, if you will, and brings forth bread and wine. Now the symbolism there, I think, is unmistakable, that it has to be he who offered himself as the bread and the wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. Now you have here a priest who was a priest before Isaac was born, before Jacob was born, before Levi was born. This preceded the Levitical priesthood. But here is the king of Salem, the king of peace, bringing forth bread and wine as a symbol of the future. And he was the priest of the Most High God. Now bear those factors in mind when we shortly here get to the book of Hebrews, because this is laying a background for what Paul had to say. And he blessed him and says, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, as the high priest of the Most Holy God, he who became father in the New Covenant, this Melchizedek was saying, Be blessed of God. Now, how could anyone else other than Christ utter those words to actually pronounce a blessing? Now, I might, or you might say, God bless you, but we can't confer the blessing. We can only ask for a blessing from God. Now, that's the difference between us And he who became Jesus the Christ, who was the God of the Old Testament, who could say this and confer the blessing. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Now that's a little unclear. Was it Melchizedek giving tithes? Or was it Abram giving tithes? It, it's, uh, the way it's written, you could interpret that maybe different ways. But Paul will make it very, very clear that it was Abram giving the tithes. Uh, so if it's a little obscure here, it's not obscure at all in the book of Hebrews, and we'll get to that. So, Abram gave tithes to this Melchizedek, who were the tithing commands later given to Israel. By whom? The tithes were the law of God. So here, well ahead of that, and did we not find even that Abel was giving tithes? So tithing and the law of God had not been codified as it was by Moses at Sinai, But the laws of God were already in effect. There was a law against stealing fruit off the tree. So the law of God went all the way back, but it was codified later on and set down in order and said to Israel, okay, here it is. It's all written out. Will you accept this? 
Oh, yes, we will. And then they went into idolatry and all kinds of problems immediately after. But here, you have this Melchizedek receiving tithes as the priest of the Most High God. That would be the Father, the one we came to know as Father, who had not been introduced as the Father at this point, until the Father and the Son introduced each other, as we saw last week in the New Testament. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. I mean, spoil of war goes to the victor. So the king of Sodom recognized that. And he says, Can I have my people back? Don't make them slaves, but you keep everything else. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the eternal, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Now, he's the one that I worship. That I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So he didn't want any excuse that anybody had made him rich, that everything he had came from God. Save only that which the young men have eaten. Uh, there were some spoils. There were probably must have been food. So the soldiers, the warriors, had eaten some of the food. So that I'll have to keep because it's already been consumed. And the portion of the men which went with me, Aner and Eshcol and Mamre, let them take their portion. So the kings that went with him as allies were due a portion of the spoil, just as Abram was as the leader in the, in the larger share. <coughs> but he said, only that which I have say over, that which belongs to these others who went with me, they can have, but I will take nothing personally lest you say you made me rich. So Christ introduced himself or interjected himself into this story because he was the one who gave them the victory. He was the one to whom Abram tithes. He was the one who was overseeing everything and to whom Abram looked. And he was king of Salem, king of peace, who in the New Testament, obviously, becomes Christ. Now let's go to Psalm 110, the other place that Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament. Psalm 110. This is quite interesting. The Lord said to my Lord. So here's a God speaking to another God, or a Lord to a Lord. Sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if we look at the context here, we'll see that this is speaking of Christ's enemies becoming his footstool, of him ruling over the whole earth. That's the, the whole context. So this has to be the Father, he who became the Father, the Most High God, saying to he who was the God of the Old Testament, who became the Christ, the Messiah, 
sit you at my right hand. Well, who sits at the right hand of the Father but Christ? He's the one. So he said, I want you to sit there until I make your enemies your footstool. David's enemies never became his footstool. He still had enemies until the day he died. And he even told Solomon, my enemies still exist. Remember, we went over that recently. Kill them. (laughs) Get rid of them. So he was under pressure until the day he died. So his enemies never became his footstool. This has to be deity speaking to deity. Sit at my right hand until this happens. It still has not happened. When Christ was here on the earth, his enemies never became his footstool. In fact, his enemies killed him, and we were his enemies, and we had a portion in killing him because of our sins. He died for our sins, not just the Jews or not just the Pharisees, but ours. So, they were never made his footstool. So, this is a prophecy for the future. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Now, where is Christ going to be? He says he is in Zechariah 2. He's going to come and dwell with his latter-day church, the true latter-day saints. And that strength and power will go out of Zion. And, of course, uh, when the kingdom comes, the Father and the Son will rule the earth from Zion. So it's going to start in Zion and it's going to stay in Zion. Rule you in the midst of your enemies. He's going to come down in Revelation 19 and put down his enemies. And there will be peace on earth. And if there are still some that won't come and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they're still stubborn. Zechariah 14, he says they won't get any rain and they'll get plagues. So, into the beginning of the millennium, there will still be some rebels that have to be dealt with. And he will deal with them. So he will rule in the midst of his enemies, but not until then. Now, I'm speaking of human enemies. He already rules because he defeated Satan. So he already rules over Satan and the demons. And they must do what he says. But he has not done that with man yet, where we must do what he says or have our knees broken. (laughs) It's kind of like Israel in a way, saying we will not force you into the vaccine, but you won't buy or sell. And Christ says, I will not force you to worship me, but I'll break your knees and you'll make a decision (laughs) one way or another. Now notice what he says. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. The world is not willing to accept the rule of Christ yet. But in the day of his power, they'll be willing. He's going to begin to show his power to the church first in signs and wonders and the power and might of God. In the beauty of holiness... This has to be speaking of Christ. The beauty of holiness can't be anybody else. And does he say there in Isaiah 54, last verse, that I will make their righteousness, speaking of the gathering, 
my righteousness. His righteousness, not our own, which is self-righteousness. So he's speaking of time when he is going to institute the beauty of holiness in power. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Now, this commenced in fulfillment even when Christ was born. When he was born as a babe and began to bring light to the world. It's picturing here the time when the womb of Mary produced the light to the world, which was Christ. It's not saying that the day begins in the morning. (laughs) It says that Christ was bringing light in the daylight portion. You have the dew of your youth. So he was young, he was born a babe, and he still was young when he died, 33 and a half years of age, just at the peak of life before you begin descending to death. To this day, that's still the case. You look at pro athletes, and they reach their peak of maturity somewhere, usually in their early 30s, and by 33 and a half, most of them are done. A few can go on until they're 34 or 5 or 6 or 8 or 40, but that's relatively few because they reach the peak of performance in their early 30s. And uh, most football, baseball, and basketball teams figure uh, they'll have you from the time you come out of college at 22 generally until you're about 33, 34, and you're all washed up. So the decline begins to happen, and he was at the peak of his youth and power when he was killed. This is a prophecy of that. Now let's go on. The Eternal has sworn and will not repent. He won't relent. He won't change this. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we'll find that Christ is the high priest, and he is our high priest forever. And he followed in the order of Melchizedek. So, he is the God of the Old Testament, and he is God of the New Testament, and he is God forevermore. He was a priest in the Old Testament before the priesthood was established. He was a priest in the New Testament, and he will be the priest evermore. The New Testament does not mention priests in terms of office in the church. When Paul goes through, he talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, and so on down the line, pastors and teachers. He doesn't mention a high priest in the hierarchy of the early New Testament church. It isn't there. You won't find it again, except for Christ himself there in Hebrews, unless you go back to Haggai and Zechariah and see that there is a high priest of men at the end time. So that is an office that was not even mentioned by Paul in the early New Testament, but is mentioned for the end time in Zechariah and Haggai, and carried through in the book of Revelation. Very interesting, because 
there are types of Christ who is the ultimate high priest forevermore. And the two men at the end who disseminate the gospel, in that sense, are types of Christ. Moses and Elijah, who are types of Christ. And joined with them are the remainder, or the 10% of the faithful who are part of the end-time church, who are also types of Christ. So every one of us, as I've said before, and I don't know that I heard this decades ago, but if we are to be in the likeness of Christ and walk as he walked and think as he thought, and Paul was saying that to the church, does that not make us a type of Christ? To be like him, to be as he was, to be as he is. That's our goal and our purpose here, is to be like Christ. So that makes us a type. So it's not just about two preachers, it's about all of us who represent him. And he'll come and dwell with all of us in Zion and be a wall of fire around us and defend us. So two may do the preaching primarily, but we're all types of Christ. We need to grasp that and understand it and internalize it. Because you need to, as an individual, understand that you are held accountable to be like him. That's our goal, that's our purpose, that's our standard. Some people will look at another human being and say, well, there's the standard. Some of us might have used Herbert Armstrong as the standard. No, Christ was always the standard, not a man. Because a man will never live up to the standard. He can't, won't, it's impossible. Christ only, the hope of salvation, lived up to the standard of his Father and of he who came. His own standard. So all of us have to live up to that. And that is your goal and your purpose. You know, we waste a lot of time spinning our wheels, comparing ourselves among ourselves. And Paul said that's not wise. You don't look at somebody else and compare them spiritually to you or to anybody. We all look to Christ and compare ourselves only to him. That's why it's hard to lift our eyes and say, Oh, look at me, Lord, and how good I am. Because compared to him, you ain't nothing. Now, if you compare yourself to somebody else, you might in vanity and ego figure you're a little better than them and you have a right to criticize them. No, you don't. Christ is the standard. As I emphasized recently, we're here to become the bride of Christ. And we have no right whatsoever to criticize the bride of Christ. She is judged by him. She is going to be married to him. She is presently engaged, betrothed to him. And she's off limits for criticism by any of us. 
Did we get that? Do we get that? We have no right to criticize each other. None. None. When you are betrothed to someone or married to someone, do you put up with anything being bad said about your wife-to-be or your wife? I know women feel pretty bad when their husband doesn't stand up for them when they are criticized by whoever. They want to be protected. They want to be honored. They want to be defended. Whether it's a physical threat or just an emotional threat or a verbal threat of some kind. Haven't all of you guys at one time or another been told, why didn't you stand up for me? I got told that a few times. Not very many, because I kind of got the idea. (laughs) You know? But Christ will defend his bride. Now, you start criticizing his bride, you might ought to be really, really careful, because you might be found to be going up against him. And that could get you in trouble. Really could. Anyway, let's move on here a little bit. Let's understand who we're talking about. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The eternal at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Now, when we read about the wrath of God in the book of Revelation and other places in the New Testament... It's talking about that wrath which is brought by Christ himself. So this can be talking about no one else. Who's going to strike fear into the kings in the day of his wrath? He shall judge among the heathen. Who's going to judge the heathen? There's many scriptures show that's Christ himself. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. Seven last plagues are going to slay an awful lot of people, and Christ is going to slay some with the sword when he comes with his saints to take over. He shall wound the heads over many countries. Many prophecies refer to Christ doing that. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. Who's the head of all? The Father. He's going to lift up his head. He's going to lift up his own head as the ruler. And the two are going to rule on the earth, there in Revelation 21. He shall drink of the brook in the way. He is the living waters. So, this is speaking, obviously, of Christ. All these things back up who Melchizedek is. Now, let's see what Paul has to say about that in the New Testament. And see what... now. What did you get out of what we just read in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110? What did you get out of it? Well, I told you what I get out of it. All right, now let's see what Paul the Apostle gets out of it. This is important. What does Paul get out of it? Go to Hebrews 1. We started into this last week and then uh, I went on to some other things. God, who at 
or I guess I ended here, God who at sundry times and in different manners spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. We read that about Moses where he said, uh, that's the way I spoke to the prophets, but not to Moses. It was eye to eye, face to face. Has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So the Father has given us the Son, and he is the one who spoke to us. He spoke to the apostles. He inspired their writings, which we're reading from right now. And he is appointed heir of all things. And he has told us that we will inherit the earth and rule with him a thousand years there in Revelation 5.10. So this can only be Christ, who spoke in the Old Testament from God, who is now appointed, and he was the one who made the worlds. Well, we saw that in the John 1. He was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1 we went to, which says the same thing. So, without him was nothing made. So, who is introduced here by Paul as the subject of the book of Hebrews? Christ himself. And we'll see that all the way through the book if we were to go through every verse. This whole book is about Christ and what his job and responsibility is and what his office is. Who being the brightness of his glory, who has the face that shines as the sun and its full strength, Revelation 1 is Christ. And the express image of his person, not just made in the image of God, but the express image of the Father. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. Well, who was that? Christ is the one who died for us. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Who did it say in Psalm 110 would sit down at the right hand until his enemies were made his footstool in the context of Melchizedek. And the type is there, is it not, with Abram, who would become the father of many nations, and it was a direct type of Christ. Because Melchizedek interjected himself into that story right after Abram's and Lot's Enemies were made their footstool. So, Genesis 14 ties in directly with Psalm 110. Why did he interject himself at that particular moment? Because Abram was returning victorious. And God had had a hand in delivering the battle to Abram. So it was a type of what will come, because Abraham is the father of the faithful, is a type of our Father in heaven and of Christ himself, obviously. So he's the one sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Who's higher than the angels? <coughs> he who became Christ Jesus. 
For unto which of the angels said he at any time, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. No, he's the only begotten son so far of God who has been changed into or back into a spirit being. And no one has gone to heaven except he who came down, not even David, it says. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He never said that to anybody but Christ himself. And again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Christ was the first begotten of many brethren, firstborn of many brethren, and many are to follow. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Yeah, but unto the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So, are we establishing here <laughs> that Christ is what the book of Hebrews is all about? I mean, that's all he's mentioned so far. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. So, Speaking of Christ, let's go down to chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So he's established who Christ is, who he was, and we'll see more of that later. But we need to be very careful lest we let any of these things slip. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm projecting ahead a little bit here, and see how much you may have let slip. There's an awful lot said there, and there is not one of us who have lived up to it all. We've slipped on a lot of it. So Paul is warning us. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, isn't that his message to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3? That we're neglecting a great salvation. And we were all spewed out of his mouth and told, you're neglecting it. You're not on fire. You're not focusing first on God. We can have so many focuses in life, but our first focus needs to be God and living the rest of our life like God because we have to do with other human beings, husband, wife, children, friends, brothers in the church, uh, business acquaintances and so on. We intermix with all these people. Well, how do we intermix with every other human being? As God would. And if we treat each other and love each other as much as we love ourselves, then we will be living our life among others in a godly way, which makes treating our brother well 
makes God our focus. So everything we do on this earth is to create a focus on God. So we need to be thinking of those things. How would Christ handle this? What would Christ say here? What would Christ do? And you will find, if you use that, you will find that often your mind, your emotions, your feelings are going in a direction contrary to the way Christ would be thinking and acting. So we can't neglect our thoughts. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. That is the tallest order ever given to man. It is the highest bar that has ever been set before man, is to bring every thought of our minds into the subjection of Christ. It's impossible, but we need to be working on it and overcoming and growing in it. It should be our primary focus. If you bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, that means that this has to be a conscious effort at all times to be like him and as he is. It doesn't give you vacation time from God. It doesn't give you downtime from God. It doesn't give you daydreaming fantasies of all kinds that are ungodly from God. It means that our whole being has to be focused on doing things the way Christ would do them. We have many examples in the four Gospels of how Christ did things. We have the whole book to show how God does things. We have the book of Proverbs to give us wisdom on how to handle day-to-day problems and people the way God would. This book is full of it. <clears throat> full of it can mean a lot of things. And too often we're full of it. <laughs> the wrong stuff. And we have to be full of God instead of full of what we tend to be full of, which is vanity and ego and all those things that make up a human being. So let's not neglect this salvation. Now, I want to move on. Uh, there's nothing here that we that isn't about Christ. I mean, chapter 3, my eye just falls on. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, very few are Latter-day Saints. The Mormon Church are not Latter-day Saints. They're not saints of the Most High God anyway. They may be saints of the devil, but that's as far as it goes. Consider uh, the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So, apostle was the highest job that Paul mentioned there in Corinthians, but, but Paul also mentions the high priest here speaking of Christ himself, because there was no high priest in the early New Testament church saving the spiritual high priest. <clears throat> we'll be here at the end, as I said, but that's, that's a one-off situation. So, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So here Paul draws a parallel or a type of Moses 
and associates him with Christ, who was a type of Christ. And we'll be here at the end again as Zerubbabel is the leader of the two and of the end-time church. But he was accounted worthy of more glory than Moses. Let's go on then to uh, chapter 5 before I run out of time here. Because I want to finish this section. Chapter 5 beginning down in verse 6. As he says, also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've been talking about Christ all the way through here. Uh, Verse 5, I mean chapter 5, go back to verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and so on because he himself uh, has infirmity? Uh, And by reason, verse 3, hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sin. So any high priest of men is imperfect and has to offer and ask for forgiveness from God. And no man takes this honor to himself but he that is called of God the same way Aaron was. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said to him, You are my son, today have I begotten you. And in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he says right here that he called him a son and made him a high priest and after the order of Melchizedek. So he says, You were the high priest in the Old Testament? And you're the high priest in the New Testament. Same being. Who in the days of his flesh cried out with tears and so on. And he was a son, yet he learned from the things he suffered. And being made perfect, verse 9, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. So, through Christ only... Can salvation come? Called and of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he's fulfilling the same position now that he did in the Old Testament. And the description there in Psalm 110 of Melchizedek was a description of Christ. Sit at my right hand until your enemies be made your footstool. Same being. All right, let's move on to chapter 6. All of this is important, but I'm I'm just making a point here. Uh, Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. He said back there not to neglect it. Here he says, set hold on it. How did Jacob grab hold of Christ and hang on all night long? That's the way we are to lay hold on the hope that is set before us. Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul. That's what anchors us. It's what gives us value as human beings and which gives us value in life. Is that there's something more than what we are today. 
If there's nothing more, we're all just going to die, and that's the end of us. But there has to be something more. Hope of the resurrection. That's the anchor of our soul. Both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil, (coughs) where the forerunner for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here he's associated again with the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the New Testament. Chapter 7 nails the whole thing. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, conferred a blessing, as we saw, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. He only gave the tenth to God. And he said, Paul even covers that. He says uh, he gave it to him directly, but now he's got a change in the priesthood, and now men receive the tithes instead of Melchizedek directly, who was there when Abraham gave a tenth. Now, this Melchizedek, first being by interpretation, king of righteousness. Now, he's going back to Genesis 14, and he's talking about Melchizedek who met Abram, right? He just said that. So, now, he's going to define who this was. First, being by interpretation, king of righteousness. Well, who is the king of righteousness in the New Testament? Christ himself. And after that, also king of Salem, which is king of peace. He called him king of Salem in Genesis 14, but he didn't include king of peace. Here Paul makes it very clear. King of Salem is also the king of peace. And Salem means peace. And only Christ, ruling from Jerusalem, will bring peace. It is the fruit of the Spirit of God. So, Melchizedek, as king of peace, was God, was Christ. Now, here he's, again, still describing Melchizedek, who met Abram. Okay? Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like to the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Everybody in the Old Testament had a father and a mother. But Christ had always been there with he who became our father, the most high God. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. He gave it to Melchizedek. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a command to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, uh, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them who received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises, that can only be Christ. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Abraham was blessed and blessed by Melchizedek, who is described here as Christ. Then he goes on down and says, 
says that perfection wasn't of the Levitical priesthood. In verse 11, <clears throat> For under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change of the law. So the Levitical priesthood is no longer in effect, but Christ is our high priest. He is the one who was Melchizedek. And now everything comes through Christ, not through Aaron. And he says here, while going on down, For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Christ was not a Levite, he was a Jew. And he became the high priest, so it's in a different order than Aaron's priesthood. So the end-time human high priest, as a type of Christ, is also after the order of Christ, not after the order of Aaron or anyone else human, someone God appoints. And it is yet far more evident... For that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. So he was priest in the Old Testament. It didn't say high priest. He was priest. But here, he's made high priest. He testifies, verse 17, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I think Psalm 110 mentioned forever. And there's no one being talked about in the book of Hebrews, except Christ. And he's being compared all the way through with Melchizedek with the same characteristics. Herbert Armstrong was right. <clears throat> Christ brought in a better hope, and through which we draw near to God, verse 19. For those priests, verse 21, were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said to him, The Lord swore and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Paul mentions both Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Direct quote from Psalm 110 here. By so much was Jesus made surety of a better testament, a better covenant, a better testament. He is the high priest of the new Testament or new covenant. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, mentions the beauty of holiness back there in Psalm 110, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer the sacrifice, <coughs> first for his own sins, and then for the people's. The high priest of Zechariah 3 had sins, filthiness that had to be repented of, forgiven. Not Christ. He offered up himself. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was, made, was since the law, makes the Son who is consecrated forevermore. 
the rest of the book of Hebrews speaks of Christ. Let's just use uh, one more example here. Hebrews 13.8, which says that Christ was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. Compare Hebrews 13.8 with Malachi chapter 3. And Malachi is an end-time book, speaking of Christ who will make up his jewels and so on here at the end of chapter 3. But here in verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Here's the God of the Old Testament projecting into an end-time prophecy saying, I'm the God who changes not. Hebrews 13.8, speaking of Christ directly by Paul, says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think it's undeniable that the God of the Old Testament was Christ, who was is sitting at the right hand of God and will forever, is the same one that Paul is speaking of in Hebrews as the God of the Old Testament, the priest of the Old Testament, and the priest of the New Testament. Melchizedek, who became the Son of God and is now the High Priest and will be forevermore. So now we know without any doubt, I think, who is the creator of the New Testament, as Paul put it, or the New Covenant. He mentions both words interchangeably. That is Christ himself under the Father sitting at his right hand. So we're going to go back to the terms of the New Covenant with firmly in mind who it is that is doing the speaking there to us and what he has to say is the standard for us to live by. So God willing, we'll go there next week again.